All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. Um, hey, Ada, Sunday school time. <laughs> All right. I'll open us up in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are, that you are our all-knowing God. You are a perfect, holy God. We thank you for the truth of your word that you delivered to us and preserved for us. God, I thank you for your people, for the church and for the fellowship that we have with one another, that we are united as one body in Christ. God, I pray that as we look into who you are this morning, that you would help us to have a better, more firm understanding of who you are, and that we'd be able to uh, draw that out of the truth of your word and uh, apply that to, to our lives and to our understanding of you. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So I wanted to start off with kind of a, a pop quiz from our last couple of weeks, just shooting out some, some answers real quick. Um, seeing how much we retain from the last couple of weeks. So first question, don't have to raise your hand, just shoot out the answer when you know it. What is the canon? What does that mean, that word canon? Canon. We talked about the canon of scripture. Standard or, or rule, something we measure up against. Um, do you have something else? Uh, obviously, I wasn't here. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think like the uh, the authorized like um, set um, word, like this is what we agree upon. Because like there's like the Dead Sea Scrolls that aren't canon. Yeah. Like this is canon. I'm not sure if I'm close, but. Yeah, it was a, a recognition. It was, as Jeremy said, a standard or a rule, something that we yeah. can can measure up against. Uh, the manuscripts that we talked about that were from 1000 AD or so around that era that were written on animal skin, what were they called? Uncules. All right, when was a Wycliffe translation written? When was it published? You can use your notes, right? Sure. And well, I guess you have to be here last week, have notes. Yeah. Yes. So it's up to Jerry and us. Yep. That's okay. It was Wycliffe translation. When was it published? Answers 1383. Codex Sinaiticus. When was that written? Yeah, I don't think you gave us last week the Wycliffe translation uh, publication thing. Oh. Melissa takes great notes. Oh, you need to step up your note game. No, that probably was my fault. <laughs> Can't be calling out Melissa on her notes. All right, Codex Sinaiticus. Is that in your notes, Melissa? When was that written? Yeah, right in there. So 330 to 400-ish. All right, number of Greek manuscripts that we have. Yeah, 6,000-ish, give or take. Um, who translated the, the Latin Vulgate? Jerome. Who was the 16th century uh, theologian, Erasmus? And what did he end up 
What was the result of his his work? Tech disreceptive. Okay, you guys did pretty good. Much better than I expected. Much better than I probably would have done myself. Um, but I say all that just because I know that all the the different facts and different things that we went over last week were um, could be overwhelming. It's a lot of uh, little tedious facts, a lot of things that are good to know, but not necessary to know. And so I just want to remind us of this verse, the most popular fundamental verse in all of apologetics, 1 Peter 3.15. Anybody have that verse memorized? Set the Lord apart as in your heart. Set the Lord Jesus apart in your hearts. Um, and always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. All right, good job. So, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to to anybody who asks you for the hope that is within you. And so I think oftentimes we can get bogged down by all these facts, um, by the historical relevance of the Bible, which is important. That's why we go over. That's why we start off with bibliology, because it is the foundation for our faith. Um, But I don't want you guys to feel inadequate because you don't know some of these facts because you maybe don't know what, a, what an uncle is, or you can't point back to uh, P52 and, and tell somebody, well, this is why I believe in the authenticity of the Bible. If we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, and we set him apart, and we realize that he is king, that he is Lord, um, then that's really the beginning of being able to give a defense for the hope that is within us. And so let's not get too bogged down with the facts, realizing they are important, but um, just because we might not be up to date on them or as proficient in them as, as somebody else doesn't mean that we can't give a hope for the an answer for the hope that is within us. Alright. We haven't really been working on these memory verses or highlighting these memory verses often. So this is our memory verse from a couple weeks ago. Um, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Um, and I Hopefully we'll get to the memory verse today. Even if we don't get through this lesson, we'll jump to the, the memory verse and try to make that more uh, a priority in what we're doing here so we can set that as, as a priority and um, meditate on that throughout the week. All right. Um, today we're going to be dipping into theology proper, and we're going to be talking about the incommunicable attributes of God. Remember, we're going through a study of systematic theology, so we're systematically going through a study generally of um, the things of God, but theology proper talks specifically about the person of God. And so we're going to get into that um, specific stream of theology, talking about who God is. And the incommunicable attributes of God is where we're going to be starting off with that. Let's go the right way, though. So systematic theology, again, it's the organized presentation of various independent, interdependent doctrines. Not independent. Interdependent doctrines. That's a, a very important word there. They all go together. They work together. Um, last week in, in our main service, we talked a little bit about the aseity of God, that he is... God by himself without anybody else giving him the the strength or power or authority to be God. And if we understand that aspect of 
theology proper and apply that to soteriology. What is soteriology again? You guys remember? Salvation. Yeah, the, the doctrine of salvation. Then we understand that God alone is in charge. He doesn't answer to anybody else. He's not reciprocating. He's not answering to, to us. Um, we don't have a, an Arminian view of, of salvation that we decide and we choose and God responds to us. But God is, um, he is self-existent. And that carries over to salvation. Talk about the, the holiness of God, how God is absolutely holy. He is absolutely perfect. And that will uh, carry over to and, and have effects on how we look at, at Christ and the impeccability of Christ, his inability to sin because of who he is, because he is God and God is holy. So Christ being God is holy. And so all these different aspects of systematic theology are interdependent, and we have to realize that we can't isolate them in, in one corner. Um, so that's, that's an important part of what we're doing here. Is it possible to define God? Question mark. Jerry. Truthfully, to a degree, simply not exhaustively. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, Spoken like a good shaper, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, if it were not possible to define God, if it were not possible to know God in some sense, then it wouldn't make sense for him to reveal himself to us in his word. So certainly we can know him to a, a degree, but not ultimately. And having that understanding will also help us as we go throughout this. A comprehensive definition of God is not possible due to our various limitations. So not because he's not able to tell us about himself, but because we are incapable of receiving that. However, we may list and define the perfections or the attributes of God so far as he has revealed them to us and as far as our language is capable. God is more than the sum total of his perfections. That's from Ryrie. And so as we look at these different aspects or these different attributes of God, we have to realize that he's not um, like one part holiness and one part um, good or one part truth or one part wrath, or one part omniscient. Um, it, he is not a, a pie chart. And some people have taken and kind of revealed the attributes of God in that kind of way, pictorially, to, to give somebody a, an image of the different aspects of God. But we can't say that this one part is how God operates in, in one situation. But when God is exercising his judgment or draft on somebody, that he is... Um, setting aside his his love or his grace. God is all of his parts, all at, at one time. Um, God is more than the sum total of his perfections. I wanted to show you guys this. This is my favorite series on the attributes of God that I've come across um, by Stephen Lawson. And they, Ligonier Ministries, will often put that out and um, give that resource away for free. And so... I've referenced that a couple of times, um, put it on our Facebook page or something, but keep an eye out for that. And I just wanted to show you the beginning of his presentation talking about the attributes of God um, for just a minute or so. Maybe. And maybe not. Maybe we'll skip it. Operator error. 
Yeah, thanks, Jerry. It is a, a good resource. So, so um, Attributes of God by Stephen Lawson. If you guys ever come across that for a decent price, or even if you want to put some decent right money into it. Well, that's what I was going to try to do. I have to kick out of there, though. Control shift R. I thought it was F5. Yeah. Control shift R can be cached too. Uh huh. That's good to know. All right. Here we go. It was A.W. Tozier who said years ago, "What comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us." I want to say to you, who you believe God to be, what he is like, is the single most important factor in your life. High views of God lead to high and holy living. High views of God lead to exalted, transcendent worship of God. But low views of God lead to low and base living. Really, our knowledge of God is the continental divide in the Christian life. One drop of water on one side of that continental divide uh, goes down rivers and empties into an ocean uh, of man-centered thinking. On the other side of that continental divide falls raindrops of God-centered thinking that flows down tributaries and into rivers and ultimately ends up in an ocean of God-centered worship and God-centered living and God-centered ministry, God-centered evangelism. It is the continental divide for how we carry out our Christian lives. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. All right, so that's just a preview. If you don't know Steve Lawson, you need to get to know Steve Lawson. He is a great Bible teacher. And once again, that's a, a great resource that um, you should try to avail yourself of, especially as we're going throughout the series. Uh, I don't know how we ended up there. Oh, there we go. God is more than the sum total of his perfections. Uh, Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. So... Again, we can't just add up, okay, well, I know God's holiness, I know his judgment, I know these different aspects of God, and expect that we can fully understand understand who God is. Um, but we have to realize that he is indeed unsearchable and uh, unknowable, at least completely. Let's see, I'm going to click back out of here for a second and go back there. Psalm 139.6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is too high, I cannot attain it. So again, just realizing and understanding that, like you said, Jerry, we can know God to a certain degree, but we can never know him uh, exhaustively, which is great, even after we've been dwelling with him for thousands of years, we still won't know and understand him completely, which is mind-blowing, and should just cause us to praise and worship him all the more. Well, it, it shows the centrality of his revelation to us in our relationship with him. Because 
you'll often run into people who will say that God can be uh, God can't be as defined as you're making him out to be. And you say, well, he's revealed himself as such. And so as far as he's revealed himself, we can speak positively about X, Y, Z. And then you'll run into people who will say, um, you're leaving too much mystery. We can know this. We can know that and, and want to pontificate about things they think they can know. And we have to admit, well, God hasn't actually revealed that. Yeah. And so revelation is absolutely central to balance in our view of God and our knowledge of God. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Uh, maybe it is. I'll read it and see what it is. It says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and to Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. So Paul and Apollos decided, well, we shouldn't go beyond what is written. And they got revelation from God himself. It's First Corinthians 4, 6. So certainly that's a standard that we should apply to ourselves. Yeah, we can speak to God insofar as he's revealed himself to us, but we dare not go beyond that. We realize that he is beyond that, beyond our understanding and our ability to comprehend who he is. Job realized that. He said, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And he goes on and on and on. That's just where I decided I had to stop. But he had a true understanding of how unsearchable God's ways are. That yes, he can be noble to an extent, but we have to realize our limitations as fallible humans. So our question we want to start off with, what is God, Jeremy? <laughs> um, we're going to go with a, a different answer than our kids' catechism. Answer. It's not based off the Westminster, so it's, the answer is a bit different. A little bit, yeah. So, yeah, the Westminster says that God is, and listen to these, these defining words that are used of God. These are speaking to his attributes. God is spirit. He is infinite. He is eternal and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. These are all examples of attributes of God. So speaking of God's attributes, there are two different ways that theologians have categorized and defined the attributes of God. They've taken and um, separated them into two categories, one being the incommunicable attributes of God and one the communicable attributes of God. Incommunicable means that they are attributes that God doesn't share with anybody else. He doesn't um, gift us with with those attributes. They're fully his and, and solely his. And then the communicable attributes are attributes that we we share in a sense, in a much lower sense than, than what God has them. Um, those that God allows those made in his image to replicate to some degree, um, to a much lesser degree than he himself has. Uh, this. I think we might need more time for the notes. Oh. If there be we could do that. Good note takers. All right. So, um, yeah, those are the, the two categories. Not that his incommunicable attributes are any better than his communicable ones, but that's just how we, we differentiate them. 
realizing that in some degree we have been made in his image and we share in who he is. We are our life, our creator. And then there are other ways in which we can't even be close to being like our creator. Are we good to go on with the next slide? More or less? All right. Incommunicable, uh, this is from MacArthur and, and Mayhew, says the incommunicable versus communicable classification is a human observation, so no classification should be accepted uncritically. The first class of perfections, incommunicable, quali qualifies the second class, communicable, and vice versa, so that it can be said that God is one, absolute, unchangeable, and infinite in his knowledge and wisdom, his goodness and love, his grace and mercy, his righteousness and holiness. Again, we don't want to try to, to separate these different attributes of God and, and dissect his, his person, who he is, um, and realize that one isn't less or, or greater than the other. All right, so let's get a list of these incommunicable attributes. Take those pens back out. Um, the first one we have is the simplicity of God. And we'll go over that in a little bit. You might think that doesn't sound like a, an attribute we would want to attribute to God, but we'll talk about it. The simplicity of God. We'll talk about his transcendence, his eternality, his imminence, his immutability, his omnipresence. Remember, these are all things that God holds himself. He doesn't share these attributes with us. His omnipotence and his omniscience. These are the incommunicable attributes of God. All right. I'm going too fast for Britt. I told her to take her pen out before, though, and she didn't, so I'm not going to wait for her. All right, talking about the simplicity of God. And she loves me. She'll forgive me, so I hope so. All of those were on your list, oh. except for the last three, so I started taking notes when I did. Yeah. Last three. Yeah. Last three are omnip omnipresence, Omnish. omnipotence, Omnish. and omniscience. The three omnis, that's right. <laughs> All right, the simplicity of God. God is not only one numerically, he is one in his essence or in his being. It's not just one numerically, but in his essence or in his being. He is not made up of parts in any sense, attributes, persons, physicality, nor is he divided. Now we talked about the importance of realizing that systematic theology is interdependent, it's all mixed together. So this will come into uh, great importance when we start talking about the, the Trinitarian fallacies and heresies that come along with understanding the Trinity, thinking that God, the triune God is made up of, of parts. There's one third the Father, one third the Son, one third the Holy Spirit. Um, realizing this simplicity of God, this attribute of God, he can't be broken up into parts. We realize that to be a fallacy to say that um, God is is made up into these different parts, often uh, illustrated through our our weak attempts to to talk about the Trinity through illustrations like an egg or a three-leaf clover, um, saying that Jesus is only one third God, and that goes against the simplicity of who He is. 
Let's look up some verses that help us to understand that. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Very clear verse. The Lord is one. Can we get somebody to look up those verses in John to grab those kind of as a whole? Sure. Okay. And then we can get 1 Corinthians 1.30. Uh, I do. I have okay. Melissa, Melissa beat everybody to it. All right. As soon as you got those verses in John, go ahead and read them. Abraham was life, and the life was the light of him. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Okay. So in him was life, right? Mm-hmm. He has life in himself. Um, and there's separation from the, the light and the darkness. And then you have verse 9 there? Okay. Oh, yep. 9 too. Look at that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Okay. So he is not only light himself, he is the source of light. and gives it to, to every man. Um, we grab 4.24 in John also. Then maybe somebody else can grab John 14.6, or happen to know John 14.6. John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Okay. And so we have to remember that all these attributes work in, in conjunction with one another. And so we'll talk about how God is spirit um, and he's not not limited in a way that, that we would be with our physical material bodies. Um, who ended up winning that battle for 1 Corinthians one thirty back here? Okay. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Okay. And so it's because of him, and it's in God. And then John 14, 6, who's got that? We should have that memorized. Yes, we should. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. All right. Atta girl. You got all the John ones. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Good, good. And, and I, you know, I think the point, it's been a really long time since I put those verse references in there, but the concept being in Jesus, you have the fullness of light, you have the fullness of sanctification and redemption, you have the fullness of life. And so Jesus being the second person of God who is Trinity doesn't contain a portion or doesn't provide a portion. He's not any less. Right, but provides all, and we see we see that in the three persons of the Godhead that each carries with him all deity, mm-hmm. uh, because there's but one. Because God is simple; He's not divided. Is it Colossians two that says that all the fullness of knowledge is deity, in Him? Deity. deity dwells in bodily form. Yes. Yep, it's all in Christ. All right. God is the fullness of all of his attributes all of the time without exception. So again, he doesn't lay aside certain of his attributes at um, certain points in time, but all these things work in conjunction with one another. He is one God. It speaks to the simplicity of God. Not simple in the way that we can comprehend and apprehend him fully, but simple in the fact that he is one. God is a unity, and everything he does is 
an act of the whole person of God. That's from Grudem's Systematic Theology. So he works as one. Nor are any parts to be predictable, no, predicated of him, (laughs) for the one is indivisible, wherefore also it is infinite, not considered with reference to inscrutability, but with reference to its being without dimensions and not having a limit. Clement of Alexandria. Do you know when he lived and died? He was after Clement of Rome, right? He was born in 150 AD, so very early. So coming to Rome is all right. Any thoughts or questions on simplicity of God? Jerry. Could you say again God is filling our blanks here again? I wasn't playing the test. Good to move on to the transcendence of God. All right, his transcendence, one of the, <clears throat> the funner attributes to look at. Um, again, I just said we shouldn't put one above the other, right? But it's it makes you feel small and realize that our God is God, realizing his transcendence. And if you don't get this one, you can't do evangelism here. <laughs> Sure, yeah. Oh, this is a pass-fail? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> you, won't, you won't be able to have effective, effective. evangelism among Mormons. That's what I should say. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Got to get this one. All right. So God is independent of and sovereign over all time, space, and matter. He is completely free of need. And so, yeah, that's a, a big thing in, in Mormonism. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was having a conversation with several Mormon missionaries, and I was surprised that they all said that um, that time, space, and matter came out of God rather than God uh, pre-existing or coming out of time, space, and matter. Um, lots of lots of Latter-day Saints are, are split on that, but I think the general teaching is that matter and time and space and the laws of nature predated God, and that He was uh, a byproduct of these things rather than him speaking these things into existence. So that's that's kind of changing um, with our younger generation. That's explicit. Matter is eternal. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I said I was surprised. I was talking with six missionaries and each one of them said, no, these things flowed out of God. So that caught me off guard. But um, the, the church teaching historically has said that those things predated God. The matter predated God? Mm-hmm. All right. His essence is infinite, and it transcends that of his creation because we are finite. Um, and again, historically, you think that this was foundational. This was definitional to being God, that God is over um, his creation, but not, not always, especially around here. So let's look up some verses for the transcendence of God. If we get some volunteers to take these different passages. You can take Psalm 97. All right. Take okay. Genesis 1 1. Okay. A couple more on there. 135. 135? Okay. 
Dermot. Yeah. Psalm 97.9 For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Amen. Most high above all gods. Uh, think of, I don't know what passage it is, it's in those Isaiah 40 somewhere where God says that he knows of no other god. Um, I've shared that with a couple Latter-day Saints and they were surprised to know that that was in the Bible, where he says, I know of no other God. I am the first and the last, and from everlasting to everlasting. Um, so that's a good one to, to point out. Well, if if there are other gods, you'd think that God, the, the all-knowing God, because it's often conceded he is all-knowing now, even though he didn't used to be, that he would know these other gods. But he says clearly in that passage that he knows of none. Um... Uh, or Genesis 1 1. Did you have that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Alright. Pretty, pretty plain to, and simple. I, mean, I shouldn't, didn't have to look it up, but I did. That's <laughs> good. You weren't here when we were talking about bibliology, but the, the sum of that is that the Bible is the authority and we need to yield to it. So it's good to open that up and let that be the authority for us. And then, Britt, do you have that other passage in Psalms? Psalm 135.6 Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. Alright. Um, and then, did anybody grab Ephesians 4.6? I have it. Okay. One God and Father of all is of all and over all and in you. Alright. Good. Um, I was looking for that verse in Isaiah. I'm not finding it. I'm finding some good ones, though. Isaiah 46, 9 says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. What? Isaiah 43, um, 10 and 11. I think that one's different, too. That's another good one, though. It says, Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. 44. I, even I, am the Lord. There is no Savior besides me. 44, 8? Yeah. All right, I'll do 6 through 8. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. These are great verses for evangelism. Um, the end of 6 says, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. He's throwing down the gauntlet. That's a challenge right there. From the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me, or is there any other rock I know of none? So, one God who is indeed transcendent by definition. All right. Uh, this is from Frame Systematic Theology. It says the creation cannot continue to exist without God's continued preservation and concurrent providence in the smallest detail of nature and history, but he can exist in all his perfections without the world. Uh, again, going back to Colossians, I think, um, that in Christ all things are, are held together, all things consist, that he is literally holding our, our world, our planet, our bodies together. 
and we are 100% dependent upon him. But he's not at all dependent upon us. Um, he he doesn't need us. He doesn't uh, depend on us or um, require us for, for who he is. He wasn't in any way lacking before creation. Uh, no, that's a common understanding, even among evangelical Christians, that God was lonely, or he needed somebody to love or to to share his grace with, and so he created us because he was lacking in some sense. Um, I think that's a, an understanding that people have without realizing how heretical it is to say that God is dependent upon us, and he somehow progressed once he created us, and we are um, adding to who God is. That's that's not the God of the Bible. <laughs> Yes. There's a popular song right now that says something like, you didn't want heaven without us, or something along those lines. Yeah. Going back to what Steve Lawson said, right? Our understanding of God, how we understand God is the most important thing about us, and goes down that continental divide. Is it going to go into a man-centered theology that says, God didn't want heaven without us, or God needs us to be full and complete and whole? Or are we going to understand God to be fully transcendent, um, apart from any need of anybody else to be self-contained in who he is. And in his love and his grace and his mercy, he created us for his glory, as we'll learn here in a few moments in the main service, not because he's lacking without us. But it's much more easier to relate to a lovesick God, isn't it? It's much more easy to relate to a man, right? who isn't transcendent, who isn't all-knowing, who we're not accountable to, but we shouldn't formulate our theology based upon what's easy. We should formulate our theology based on what's true. It's like what Paul said, that um, said you have made God into, um, into like a man with life passions. Yeah. Like you, you made him what you want him to be, mm-hmm. and that's not... That's not even right. Okay. He says in, in Romans 1, you've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship That's and serve right. created things rather than creator. You've made yeah. for yourselves images made to look like man and birds and animals and reptiles. Yeah. Um, but God is supreme, and we should worship him and acknowledge him. Yes? May I ask the class if, uh, if God could exist in all of his perfections without the world, how is it that he was loving before uh, the world was created. How was, what was the outlook for his love? Trinity. Wow. The Trinity. Oh. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, that inter-Trinitarian love that the Father loved the Son from eternity past. And was the that? Son, the Holy Spirit. Was that enough? Yeah, was that enough? <laughs> Dare we say it wasn't? <laughs> <laughs> right, and so that's why we really have to be careful, especially with music. When there are lyrics like that that float around, it's basically saying God didn't think that he was enough, or God didn't feel like he was enough. He just longed for us, and so he needs us to have be an outlet for his love or something like that, but you just have to be so careful. Yeah. And that's a popular theology. It makes people feel good when God loved us, and, and we are the center of that. And yeah, that's a true statement, but to to declare that to the detriment of God's person saying that he needed to love us is pretty scary. And they're they're shortchanging themselves. Like the truth is 
fact that God, who didn't need us, still loved us and chose to die for us. Like, that's far better than yeah. God needing us in heaven. Purely to display the riches of his grace and bring glory to himself. Mm-hmm. Amen. As we'll learn in the service. Yeah. Cool. Any other thoughts? That's good stuff, right? A lot. Talk about how I like the transcendence of God. And yeah. I felt kind of guilty about it, but it's a good good truth, good doctrine to remind ourselves of. All right. An attribute under the heading of God's transcendence is his aseity. This word means that he is self-existent and self-contained. Again, we talked about that a little bit last week. He's not dependent upon anybody else. The answer to who created God is no one. God is transcendent. He is the independent creator of all things. I was listening to a R.C. Sproul message just last week, and he talked about how he went to Yale University, and he was explaining to all the the staff and um, students, professors there, that we really only have three options for the the beginning of the world, for matter coming into existence. Either someone or something was eternal, and that was the beginning, or someone or something that was eternal created something else, which really is just kind of pushing the, the problem down another level, or that someone or something created itself, it's self-existent. And he was willing to, to take questions, to dialogue, and, and accept any rebuttals, and nobody was, was willing to stand up and say, well, no, there's a, a different option, or those don't make sense. And so really it boils down to you. either there was somebody who was eternal, or something that created itself, which is ridiculous um, on its face, which a lot of the world still believes that the world wasn't here and then poof, it was here. It just created itself out of nothing. Um, but God is that eternal being. He is the one who didn't have a creator. Nobody else um, thought him into existence. Nobody else formulated him out of anything else. He has always been. So this doctrine of the transcendence of God really ties in closely with the eternality of God because God being eternal necessitates that he is transcendent, that everything else flows out of him, um, that he is above and superior and and better and before all of creation. All right. The self-existence of God denotes that the ground of his being is in himself. In the reference, it is sometimes said that God is his own cause, but this is objectionable language. God is the uncaused being, and in this respect, differs from all other things. So God didn't create himself, but he has always been. And that'll be enough to give you a headache, right? That um, He's without beginning, without end. He has always been, and never lacking. Uh, let's see, this is from Van Til. He says that God is in no sense correlative to or dependent upon anything besides his own being. Again, this speaks of the aseity of God, of his transcendence. He's not dependent upon anybody. Thoughts or questions on the transcendence of God? All right. Well, let's move on to, again, closely related attribute of God, his eternality. 
Again, if you haven't taken an aspirin yet this morning, <laughs> now would be a good time. All right. God has no beginning, and he has no end. He exists endlessly and beginninglessly, right? <laughs> no beginning, no end. Yeah, eternal. That's a, a better way to put it. God exists in one indivisible present, not conditioned by time. So again, if that first statement wasn't enough to rattle your brain, think about this. He consists not in, in one moment of time, but he is outside of time. So God is in in a very real sense. He is here, present, in this moment. He is not outside of this, this moment. But yet God is also, um, when he was speaking with, with Abraham through the bush, he is when Abraham was hitting that rock and, and getting water out of that rock. Moses, thank you. Yeah, he wasn't with Abraham when Abraham hit a rock. <laughs> um, and every every point in time in, in history past and history present, or in, yeah, I guess for, for God, um, it's, it's all history. It's, again, enough to give you a headache, right? That he isn't limited to one particular point in time. And that's why he's able to say with certainty that um, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. That's why he's able to say that um, that you will face persecution, but take heart, because I've overcome the world, because he's outside of time. He's not limited by time. Um, that is our God, our transcendent, eternal God. Mm. It's hard to get a grasp on, but it's cool to think about. All right, let's look up some verses about God's eternality. It looks like I used a couple examples that are also used there. You guys go around and let's see who's got that Exodus 3.14 passage. All right, Melissa, Jerry, will you grab the Deuteronomy 32? And Psalm 90, verse 2. That's a good one. Jeremy's got that. Isaiah 57.15, I'll grab that one. And... 1 Timothy 1.7. Who can get that? Okay. All right. Okay, whenever you got it, go ahead and read it out. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. All right. So he is not, he was not, he will be. That's his special covenant name. I am that I am. Again, that speaks back to his transcendence and his aseity as well. All right, I got Isaiah 57, 15. Jeremy's got something. Well, just an interesting note that I like to remind people on the Exodus 3 passage of the burning bush. Mm-hmm. It says at the beginning of that passage that it's the angel of the Lord appearing to him out of the midst of the bush. And God and the Lord speaks to him. So that's just an interesting thing to make note of. Yeah. That's the angel of the Lord. That's cool. Yes. Um, I read somewhere recently that um, where it says um, I am, it also, like in one translation, says as well as I will be. So like um, I am and I will be, meaning like it was the pre, um, it, it was Jehovah can be Christ. So like I will save my people. 
You know what I mean? So, I'm not sure if that's right, but. Yeah, yeah I don't know. That's cool to go into the New Testament and look and see how Christ refers back to that and how he takes yeah. claim of that name for himself. Right, yeah, I think that's what it's sort of aiming towards. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's saying that he has his existence outside of anything else, outside of time itself. All right, Isaiah 57:15 says, For thus says the high and exalted one, speaking to his transcendent right? who lives forever, speaking to his eternality, whose name is holy, speaking to his holiness, where we haven't gotten to yet, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. What does that speak to you? That he also dwells with the contrite and lowly of spirit. We haven't gone over it yet, but eminence. his eminence. That he, though he is transcendent, he has made himself low. And to receive the heart of the contrite. So that's a cool verse. You see several attributes of God in that one verse. That's a verse worth memorizing. Yeah. Verse worth reading again. Let me read it without disruption this time or interruption. Uh, for thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's a cool verse. All right. Deuteronomy 32 40. I started 39. I suppose. <laughs> See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. I desire to let and give life. I am wounded and desire to heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever. Hmm. Yeah. That's cool. I love those passages where God's challenging somebody else, saying, no, I am the transcendent one. I'm the eternal one. Say something. Do something. Prove it. Because uh, it's impossible. He is completely set apart. All right. What else do we got? First Timothy 1.17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. It's a great passage for our, our text that we're going to be looking at this morning, or our, our message we're going to be hearing this morning. It's all about God, and that should be our heart and our, our heart's desire for his glory alone, because he alone is eternal. If God is a simple, transcendent, and eternal being, he must also be immaterial. We've got a quote here from Ignatius. He says, Honor thou God indeed as the author and Lord of all things, for there is no one superior to God, or even like him, among all the beings that exist. Look for him that is above the times, him who has no times. And then Augustine. Thy present day does not give away to tomorrow, nor indeed does it take the place of yesterday. Thy present day is eternity. <laughs> Again, that'll blow your mind, right? Your present day is eternity. Um, we are so finite 
so unable to even grasp what that means. That's cool though. Thoughts or questions on the eternality of God? When it comes to immateriality, there's a debate you guys can listen to that <laughs> addresses that topic. Yeah, it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can say this, and for this is the last day I can say this. Uh, it's my only formal public debate. It was last November. The uh, topic was um, is God immaterial, essentially. So you can find that online. I have another debate tomorrow online. One thirty, is that right? One. One. All right. So if you guys are available at one tomorrow, listen in on that. And who won that first debate? I, I never got results. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If we test it against the infallible Word of God, I think there's no question. All right. Any other thoughts or questions? I'm not sure. What's the last blank, guys? God Did we get it? One indivisible present, not conditioned by time. What was it? I'm sorry. God um, exists in one indivisible present, not conditioned by time. And the other blank is God must be immaterial. Why is it, again, that God must be immaterial? A lot of people here need to watch that debate. Well, I guess so. <laughs> material beings yes. are finite because they are material. Material is finite. We are limited by the nature of being material, right? I can't be here in, in Germany and Australia at the same time. I'm limited to one place and point in time. What were we going to say, Gary? cannot dwell both on a high and holy mountain and with the contrary part. Yeah. If he's like us. And going back to creation um, and that idea of something creating itself, but that doesn't work because you have to both exist and not exist at the same time in the same way to be self-created. That's contradictory. It doesn't work. The hardest word you see for anything else. Yeah. That, Imagine what's yeah, and that seems reasonable and rational to uh, a lost and dying world. And then we posit the, the idea that they already knows truth because God has placed it within their heart that there is a God outside of time and space who has created us. And somehow we become the, the laughable ones. You actually believe that, that a man rose from the dead? That's impossible. Well, no, it's not. It's impossible that we're here without the creator. That is truly impossible. Yeah, it's impossible that you can employ logic and reasoning and even yeah. communicate that question without a creator. By what standard do you come to that conclusion? All right. Well, next week we'll get into the eminence of God, the counterpart to his transcendence. All right, let's go ahead and pray. God, we again thank you that you alone are God, that you are before anything. You are before any material. You are before any um, any 
time or space, that those things do indeed come from you, that you are eternal, you are transcendent, that you are our God, and that there is one God. Help us to, um, to take and to apply those truths to other aspects of theology, to be more rounded in, in our understanding of who you are, and that we would be consistent within um, each of these aspects of, of theology, and um, that we would sharpen ourselves as we go throughout this course. God, I pray that during this next hour or so that you would draw our hearts closer to you and that we would truly uh, honor and glorify you for who you are and that you would continue to to amaze us with, with your being. God, we are so undeserving of your love and your grace. You are so far above us, and yet you have stepped into your creation. We're so thankful. Amen. Amen.